Hello and welcome to episode 74 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I am Nathan Fox and with me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, how's it going, buddy? It's going good. Day after the uh, election, last night I had class uh, and during class... Yeah, we had uh, the TV, was not on in class, but out in the lobby. Wow, just watching those uh, results come in um, is, has made me eat uh, crow this morning. I was, I, I literally came up with a paradox question in which Trump won, and I thought that was such an interesting paradox and a good example to try to explain that question type, and um, lo and behold, it's come to pass. So, Are you super devastated? Uh, no, cause to be honest, I, I mean, I wasn't excited about Clinton, so I could not vote for Trump because he's just a crazy person, but I'm not like, I don't know. I, I'm not crying or anything. I'm just sort of like, oh, okay, well, here we go. Yeah. So. It's not the end of the world for me either, but the I know that for, it is the end of the world or seems like it for many people, especially young people. I actually sent out a uh, discount code this morning for my online class, um, $200 off, one week only, and it's uh, the code is Trumpocalypse. So you, <laughs> you put in the Trumpocalypse code and you get 200 bucks off. If, uh, if you can spell that correctly. <laughs> well, there's a link too. And okay. I, I tweeted it out and everything. Yeah. Uh, email me if you have any questions about it. But it's just uh, one week only and it's a way to channel your rage if you're super pissed off about the election. There's nothing, nothing that capitalism can't solve. Yeah, totally. I mean, <laughs> me personally, it's not. I, I was on a like a. I, I do this uh, stair climbing, stair hike thing with a bunch of random people uh, in Los Angeles on Tuesday nights. And um, wait, what do you do? Uh, it's just a, like a hike, like an urban hike. There's a bunch of Los Angeles is really, really hilly. I don't know. If people don't, oh, okay. don't realize okay. that Los Angeles yeah. has all these uh, crazy staircases that are built into the neighborhoods. And um, it's just a nice way to get out and, you know, stretch your legs, get some exercise and see the city and chat with folks. So it's a bunch of random people um, that, that meet up on Tuesday nights and we go climb these stairs and then we like eat pizza and drink beer afterward. Mm-hmm. And it's really fun, but they're like a bunch of, you know, we're in Los Angeles, so it's a bunch of sort of educated uh, liberal folks and they're just like completely heartbroken last night. And it was, uh, it was actually kind of difficult for me to even hang out with them because I was like, I'm not totally devastated. You know, it's, mm-hmm. to, for mm-hmm. me, it's like, okay, this guy's a douche. He is, you know, he's aggressively sort of anti-intellectual, mm-hmm. but I've already lived through a president who was aggressively anti-intellectual. Uh, I do think it is, it is interesting that um, uh, what he might do to the Supreme Court, speaking of how this might relate to law, uh, I was listening this morning. Um, we obviously have the seat that's empty right now from Scalia. And uh, I guess, you know, uh, some of those other justices are getting pretty old and will probably step down or pass away, however that happens. Um, and then Trump will likely, you know, be selecting a conservative. So the bench will become more conservative than it has been in the past. Yeah, well, that's always the argument for why the presidency actually matters, right? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. That never changes. Yeah, who knows? I 
it, it's hard to see Trump as actually a social conservative. I don't really know that he, you know, I think he had to sort of play to his base a little bit, but like, do you think Trump yeah. actually gives any shits about abortion? I have a hard time believing that he does. Yeah, I don't think he does either. And someone else was saying today too, that, um, whenever gay marriage or other issues like that came up, he just, he just didn't even want to talk about them. And I think that's cause he, he doesn't care about them, but he can't come out in favor of them. But who knows? You know, I don't whatever. think he cares about anything other than just getting elected, which, yeah. which he did. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. just like, I mean, he he said it way before he ran for president. Right. He's he, he basically telegraphed exactly what he would do. He was like, well, half of the country and people are idiots and I can just say things and just get elected. And so then that's exactly what he did. Mm hmm. So uh, uh, who knows what he'll actually do or whether he'll be able to do much when he's in power, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we might just never appoint another Supreme court justice the way things are going. We're just going to have them. They'll just die off and then there'll just be nobody left. Uh, wait, why don't you think anyone would be appointed? Well, hasn't it been the longest uh, gap ever on the, the current ninth seat that's not filled? Yeah, but I mean the House, the the sorry, the Senate is controlled by Republicans, and they're probably gonna. I mean, he's gonna come to some terms with them on somebody, I think. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, it, it's it's uh, it's interesting times, I suppose. But yeah, uh, I guess we should get back to business. <laughs> yeah. Cool. A lot of interesting stuff today, right? Yeah. Well, we already recorded, and we will uh, put it later in the show. We recorded uh, an interview with Anne Levine, lawschoolexpert.com, Anne Levine. And we talked a lot about uh, what's going on in this current admissions cycle. She made an argument for, hey, you're pissed off about the election. Go to law school and do something about it. You're going to be a lawyer. You're going to you're going to be the one that's going to be fighting all of these battles. So um, go to law school and do something about it. We also have on the show a bunch of letters from listeners. I'm not exactly sure how far we're going to get, but we have another note about accommodations. We have a complimentary note about LSAC proctors. That's a rare one, so that'll be interesting. Yeah. We have something from Scott about not spotting flaws. One little quick teaser. We're going to really try not to be too cheesy about this, but Ben and I hear all the time comments like, yeah, I would just, I will really wish I lived in your area so I could take one of your classes. And we are shocked to realize that people don't know about our products. So just a little bit of a warning, we're going to make an effort to try to get in little messages about the products we offer uh, onto the show. Um, yeah. we, we both have, we each have online programs. We each have um, online private one-on-one -on -one tutoring. I have a whole bunch of books that I wrote, and we're going to just kind of try to sneak in a few um, promos. So I guess I'll be the guinea pig and start with one. I, I talked about this uh, in the interview with Anne Levine too, but for people who are pissed off about the election, uh, I just announced a coupon code for my online class. The code is Trumpocalypse and uh, it's one week. It's $200 off. I haven't given a $200 off discount like that before. Uh, it's a silver lining if you're super pissed and you want to get cracking on the LSAT. Yeah. In later shows, 
I will intentionally give Ben the opportunity to uh, pimp his own products as well. It's just, uh, you know, hey, you don't pay anything for the show, so you're going to have to listen to a couple promos. We're, we'll try not to make them too, uh, too annoying. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I don't have a promo going right now, but my online program does uh, cure cancer. So <laughs> Awesome. Wow, that's even better. <laughs> yeah, nice. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay, let's, what do you think, dive in here? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Dear Ben and Nathan, thanks for your podcast. I started listening in August almost every day when I was working out at the gym or walking and listened to every episode between then and the September LSAT. They made my gym time fun and helped motivate me to study hard. I learned much from your discussions beyond prep tests and my own practice review. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, thanks for listening. Thanks for writing. Episode 72 and a half was particularly inspiring for me. I listened to episode 66 after my June test and realized that I probably also made the mistake of taking the LSAT too seriously. Unfortunately, I allowed myself to be obsessed with it for another two months after the realization. I started prepping for the LSAT in late December last year, aiming for the February test. I decided to withdraw two, two days before the test day and registered for the June test. Right away, right there, I would say, hey, good job recognizing that you were not, rec- not ready for February. Mm-hmm. right no shame in withdrawing when you're not ready yep. okay yep i had a panic attack during the june test whoops canceled the score later and registered for the september test what mm. do you think there probably shouldn't have canceled who knows uh, how bad it was i mean i guess uh, if it was a bona fide panic attack and this person didn't answer any of the questions and sure right right but Probably not. Yeah, I mean, if you sat there and did the test, generally, you should probably just keep your score. Law schools only care about your highest score, so why not just, you know, get your score? Yeah, the canceled score is still going to count for the one in three that you can take within a two-year period. And just as we talked about in the last episode, someone got a 173 that they almost canceled. (laughs) Yeah, right. That was the very last episode. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's uh, water under the bridge. So registered for the September test, I had anxiety attacks during the September test again and ended up with a 168, which I believe was far below my capability. That's a pretty good score. Um, so I'm not too sure what this listener was expecting. Well, who is this, by the way? Are we allowed to say their name? Um, I think we need to make up a name. Let's say Leaf. Leaf. So, uh, 168 is a pretty good score. I mean, that is the 96th, right, percentile? Maybe the 97th, 96th. And, uh... Leaf's prep was also pretty intense. So, the question is... It's only 25 days from the December test. Uh, what do I do? But uh, Leaf sent us a chart with results from each prep test from 40 through 78, mm-hmm. which she did three times. Oh, sorry. She did 40 through 74 under test conditions three times. Yeah. Wow. And she did uh, 75 through 78 twice. She also drilled games and logical reasoning questions from PTs 1 through 38 by type. 
and reading comprehension by section. I don't know what that means three times. Yeah. I also thoroughly reviewed almost every section I did. Um, okay, good. I don't know why that's almost every section. There's no point in doing a section if you're not going to thoroughly review it. But okay, thoroughly reviewing these sections, that's good. Mm-hmm. In fact, I got a little bored due to familiarity with the test materials after the June test, but I managed to discipline myself to go through them again and review each section more carefully for the September test. This is nuts. Um, but we <laughs> It's not like this is uniquely nuts. I mean, we've heard this before. Yeah. I was quite frustrated by the two test experiences and wasn't sure what to do next after the September test. I have done some research on test anxiety and started counseling sessions with a psychiatrist since September. Though I felt I had reached the 175 level by the September test, I'm not sure whether my own evaluation was right since I only had one fresh PT for diagnosis between the June and September tests. I haven't spent much time on the LSAT since September test. It's been six and a half weeks and I only did four prep tests, 10 game sections, four reading comprehension sections, and 300 <laughs> logical reasoning questions and only reviewed the games. Holy cow. This person is, um, they've got drive. This yes. is, Chief needs to go to law school and become a lawyer. Oh yeah. This is very lawyerly. Oh yeah. 100%. This is a lawyer folks. Yep. <laughs> if this is not you, think again. <laughs> right. I think you... <laughs> you know, this is what you're up against. These are the people that you're going to be going to law school with. These are the people that you're going to be in legal practice with. You know, mm -hmm. these are the kinds of uh, animals that are out there. I mean, they're just, I say that in a complimentary fashion. Like, this is like, you know, Leaf is a beast. I'm really worried that I will underperform significantly on the December test day again. That's a, a you know, underperform significantly with a 168. Mm-hmm. I plan to take two to three six-section prep tests each week in various environments. Okay, don't do that. Uh, the test is five sections. Why are you doing that? Aiming to get minus zero within a 33 per, uh, minute per section time limit. Absolutely not. Why are you doing that? She's trying to make it harder for herself because she's seen these sections before. I know, but it's 35 minutes and... What are you, what? I, I just, it, it's like you're suffering from anxiety. Hmm. I wonder why. <laughs> Here would be, so I don't necessarily have an issue with her speeding it up for a section that she's seen before, or even for some of like the older reading comp sections, they're so much easier in my mind that trying to make it a little bit more difficult by pushing yourself to go a little faster is not something I have an issue with. But she's done these tests all at least twice, some of them three times. I would say stop with the, the section practice and turn your focus to all the questions that gave your mind a run for its money. That sitting there and thinking like, why the heck is this correct? Why is this answer wrong? And spend, I would say, spend her time focusing on those questions she knows give her trouble. Yeah. And really trying to understand them. It seems very likely to me that Leaf has tried to substitute quantity for quality. Yeah. Right. I mean, what's the point? If you really understood it the second time you did it, what's the point of doing it a third time? 
You know, I just, mm-hmm. I don't think, I don't think she's actually understanding when she does her review. Yeah. That's to me seems like the, the big likely problem. So I have three questions that I like to ask people about every question that they get wrong. Uh, the first question goes like this. Let's say that the, the correct answer is A, right? Yep. And so I would say, it's actually, it's not really a question, sorry. It's like a, it's like a, the beginning of a sentence and they have to finish it. And so I would say, answer A is correct because, and then they have to finish it. And, you know, if your answer is vague or doesn't deal with specific words from the answer choice or the passage, you're not really digging into why it's correct enough. Yeah. And then I would say the second question is answer choice C, which is the answer they chose, is wrong because. And a lot of people will say it's worse than answer A. Yeah, right. Which, which certainly may be true, but or it is true. But tell us why it's worse. It's if if that's what you say, then say it's worse because and you need to talk about words. This is a test that is completely obsessed with wording and language and what those words mean. So if you can't identify the word or phrase or idea that made something wrong or made something correct, you're not gleaning enough from that question. Yeah, I I would add to that and just say there aren't as many second best answers as most people think there are. I mean the mm-hmm. the people people think that all the time like oh well but okay but if but if A wasn't there, then it would be D, right? And I'm like, mm, not not really. No. No. I mean, <laughs> no, it's like a false contrapositive or something, so it's not even doing anything to help the argument or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's just and people people are liking it or they're trying to make a case for their answer choice and it's like, you know, you're not really understanding that there's one right answer here and that people who are really good at the test would have gotten this one right and would not have been attracted by that answer at all. So it's not enough to just be like, oh, well, okay, yeah, I can see why it's A, and then move on. I mean, you really Mm -hmm. have to ask yourself, what was it about C that makes it probably conclusively wrong? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. This is great. What's your third question? Why did you make this mistake? Which I think is, is different from just understanding the mistake itself, right? Understanding the mistake is understanding why this answer is in fact logically better uh, or correct, whereas the other one is per se wrong. Yeah, so answers to that would be like, oh, well, I just misread the argument. Yes, which or, are horrible. <laughs> or I misread the, que- I didn't correctly identify the question type. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, I misread the answer choice. All of these are very easily corrected by the way but you have to force yourself to correct these mistakes yeah and even uh even when you answer that it can help to dig in because it's like okay you misidentified the question type why did you misidentify the question type what don't you know about this question type did you read it too fast did you not realize that when it says properly inferred that means must be true or you know what wording (laughs) did you miss was it really just as simple as you were reading too fast or you weren't reading carefully enough? I mean, I hear so many people who say, oh, I just need to read more carefully. And maybe that is part of the problem. But it's also, in some ways, I feel like kind of a cop-out. Like, it's like, oh, I just, 
I just need to pay attention more. And it's like, yeah, but maybe you also just don't know that when something says that one thing increases the chances of another, that is a causal verb. And you didn't know that. And so even if you had read it really carefully, you still would have come to the same conclusion. Yeah, I mean, be a little more introspective, folks. Get into those mistakes and be honest with yourself about why you're making them. The truth very frequently is something like, I don't have any fucking clue what to do on necessary assumption questions. (laughs) That's the real truth. (laughs) Yeah. You know, but... It's a brave student who actually tells me that there just aren't that many of them. That's my favorite yeah. student in the class, by the way, you know? Yeah. Hey, Nathan, I just, I realized that when I see these sufficient assumption questions, you're always just predicting the answer before you ever look at the answer choices. And I have no idea how you're doing that. Mm-hmm. Okay, good, <laughs> good. Now we're making progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that book uh, we talked about a couple of epi- episodes ago, uh, Make It Stick, yeah. They talk about the research of learning and so forth. Yeah. And they just um there's like a whole chapter or two dedicated to this idea of self-deception when it comes to knowing what you think you know. And uh last night to try to hit that home again, and I know you've done this as well, but I was like, look, let's do these four questions. These are harder questions, but you absolutely cannot cannot look up the answers until we talk about them. And you know, everybody's really tempted to look them up. But um, they, most everyone there did not. And the ones that didn't, uh, while we were sort of waiting for some other people to finish, they started diagramming the, uh, the passage. It was one that could be diagrammed. It was a parallel reasoning question that had a lot of if-then statements in it. And they're like, well, I don't know what the answer is. I think it's the answer that I chose. But now I have to like <laughs> go through the process to see why that may or may not be true. And I was like, that's awesome because if if you had looked up the answer and it had been right, you would have been like, cool, I knew that. I knew it was right. And apparently you didn't because that uncertainty compelled you to start diagramming that answer. I'm not saying I, I don't want to use that example to suggest that you should diagram everything. In fact, you should diagram almost nothing. But I think it just illustrates that once you look up the answer and see that you are either right or wrong – you're going to quickly jump to some conclusions that you get it, that you, that everything is good to go. And that is a false positive. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of, um, in logic games, I will have the class do a section and in logic games, I'll never read the answer key to the class because we're going to go through the games anyway. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to prove to you why the right answers are right. And the wrong answers are wrong. Yeah. And we don't need the answer key to tell us the answers on the logic games ever. Yeah. There is mm-hmm. an answer. We're not going to have any doubt. We're going to figure this out and we're going to know what the answer is. And mm-hmm. I think what the, the problem is, cause I can some, you know, I can spot students think they're getting away with things, right, Ben, but they're really not when the teacher's up there looking you in the face, we know what you're doing, but I can see kids who think they understood it and they're just spacing out. Mm-hmm. Right. And, but then they ask me a question later, which clearly indicates that they didn't even understand what we were doing. So it's mm-hmm. like, Hey, get off your phone. What are you doing on your phone? You don't understand this stuff. You're in LSAT class right now. Stop it. Yeah. Because they can get on the games, especially you can get them right for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you just look at the answer key and go, Oh yeah, I got it right. No problem. 
mm-hmm. then a lot of times it's like, well, yeah, but you didn't actually, you didn't actually get it. Yeah. So anyway, um, I get back to, to take it back to Leaf's email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a little bit more here, you know. Yeah, she says the reason why she's doing, you know, six section tests and 33 minutes per section is because it'll be the fourth round of practice. And I couldn't think of other ways to add pressure or increase the level of challenge. You know, for someone who's struggling with anxiety, I got to just say again, I, I think that's the exact opposite of what you need to be doing here. I don't think more pressure and increased challenge is going to be the right thing for you. You mm-hmm. need to go in there with the mindset that the test is easy, right? When, when Ben or I go in and score 170 something high 170 something, that's because it's easy. It's not like, because I did push ups before the, before, you know, like I, I don't understand why, people think like, Oh, make it harder for myself. It's nah, uh, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you should be feeling, you know, Hey leaf, you have done the work. You know, mm-hmm. if anyone has ever in the history of the LSAT done the work, it's you. Mm-hmm. I don't think doing like doubling down or quadrupling down in the last three weeks is the right solution here. Yeah. Check this out. Since RC has been my nemesis, I plan to read every RC passage from prep test one through 78 again within three minutes and immediately write down the main point, reasoning structure, main purpose, author attitude, and keywords of the passage from memory. Wow. I don't know why she's limited to three minutes. Definitely don't. Well, she's just, she's trying to make it more pressure packed for herself. She's so worried about the time. Yeah, I get it. Like she's running uphill with weights on. Yeah. But I don't know. I I just don't think I, it's, it's impossible sometimes for people like this to just take a deep breath, you know? But yeah. I, I got to say, one of the reasons why I kick your ass on this test is that I go into it with a pretty zen kind of a mindset. You know, <laughs> like yeah. when, when I'm in that room, I'm just gleefully sitting there thinking about how stressed everyone else is and how I love the LSAT and it's easy to to reach these crazily elite scores, I think you have to do something. I, I just don't know that g- more grinding it out is going to do anything here. Yeah, I I don't. Uh, I mean, I, I commend her uh, effort and sure, absolutely desire to do more. I would just think that that effort needs to be redirected, which is probably why she's she's emailing us, but redirected to. The problem, any any question, it doesn't matter the difficulty level, any question that causes her to like think that's hard for her to sort of think through, you know, and to work on those and uh, any that she she missed, try to go through those three things that I was asking, why is the correct one correct, why is the wrong one wrong, and why do you think you ended up making that mistake Actually, I think if she does that, if she goes back through those tests and looks at those questions that gave her trouble or that she got wrong, she will. She might see some patterns that are often unrelated to question type. You know, like, oh, wow, 
I keep missing or making mistakes with the phrase only if or whatever, uh, whatever that mistake might be. And those insights I think will be more valuable than just this, this doubling down and practicing. The other thing I would work on is when she reads sentences to practice turning those sentences into things that she can concretely see in her mind. Yep. I mean, when I'm going through like a, a question in class Sometimes I might feel like, hey, we got to get through a bunch of things here, and I might try to read it quickly, and then I start talking about it, and it's essentially a waste of time. So I don't actually make that mistake much anymore, but I used to when I first started teaching. I'd be like, oh, I gotta, I gotta read this question quickly. Everybody's waiting for me, and I, I want to, you know, explain it and not waste anyone's time. But if I don't just slow down, read the first sentence visualize what it's saying. Okay, I get that. Usually I have some sort of reaction like, oh, that's stupid or that makes sense with my worldview. Then read the next sentence, read the next sentence, and then um, it's like before it's even over, I can almost anticipate the problem and I'm like, okay, let's start talking about it. Do you guys see the problem? Do you see the same problem that I'm seeing right now as we read through this? And um, if people aren't visualizing or trying to turn this horrible language into their own plain English, then... They're not going to see it, but then you can see it if you try to do that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Quantity is not going to be a substitute for quality. So I, I would just say, I mean, probably, can we say do a little less studying? Uh, yes. I would yes. like to say do a little less studying. I mean, it, you're, it, it's much more in the last few weeks here for a student who has done all this work. It's much more about performance on the day of. And mm -hmm. so I, I think you need to start doing things that are going to make you happier, healthier and building confidence and 10 hours a day of frantic LSAT prep is not going to do any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of deep work on really truly understanding the questions plus boy, exercise, sleep, meditation, nutrition, some therapy, I mean, for real, because this is clearly, you know, <laughs> she cares about it so, so, so much. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But that's, I, it, it's almost gets counterproductive at a certain point. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anything else on that? No, no. All right. Let's uh, move on. This is a bit of an accommodations uh, update or kind of counterpoint to the stuff we were talking about last time. Um, Hi, my name is Crystal. I've been listening to your podcast for a while. On episode 71, you guys were talking about accommodations. I just wanted to say I agree with you 100%. Uh, I took the test and bombed it with a score I don't want to say. I have epilepsy. And yeah, it makes things harder for me, but I don't look for any excuses. I was planning to take the December LSAT, but I'm still scoring so low. I'm hoping I can take it in February and still get into the school I want. Mm, probably going to want to consider taking another year rather than applying after the February test. Uh, my scores have increased dramatically. I think people just don't understand. They have to put in the extra effort needed and stop using excuses for weaknesses. If you can't perform well on the test, then maybe law school is not where you need to be. I got a little more information from her about the epilepsy thing. Uh, I wanted to know how the epilepsy actually manifested uh, in her 
She says she had she got it when she was 17. She was not born with it. The doctors never found out why she got it. I was in a medically induced coma for a little over a month, and I lost just about 50% of my memory. I've always been interested in a career in law, and I felt like nothing was going to get in my way. Studying and learning is so much harder for me because my memory is really weak. Everything I learn gets washed away within two days if I don't continue to review things. And if I stay too long on computers or anything digital, it usually triggers my seizures. Hmm. I was studying on my own with some books for the LSAT and taking practice tests, and I thought it was enough to go ahead and take the test in June, but man, was I wrong. I plan on taking the test without accommodations because I took it in June without any and I finished each section within the time limits. I just think my problem was the understanding of the material, which I'm working on now. Well, I would have to commend her and agree with her that her problem most fundamentally is understanding, uh, not uh, the timing aspect, which everyone else seems to flip around and get backwards. But uh, I would still say go for the accommodations. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, someone who actually, you know, having seizures, you clearly qualify. Um, if law school is really a thing that you want to do, I don't know. In this current environment, I don't know why you would not apply for accommodations. I mean, that seems silly. Yeah, and I, I don't want to suggest that she even needs them. I, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, hey, if you can get them, <laughs> you should go get them. And that's what we've always been saying, right? Like, <laughs> Even if you don't need them, go get them if you can get them. Everybody benefits from them. Yeah. Right? I mean, if I had accommodations, I would know for sure that I would score perfectly on the logic games, for example. And yeah. there's some chance that I wouldn't score perfectly on the logic games on any random section. I mean, I can have a bad day if I, yeah, 35 minutes to get all four games. You know, I mean, I'm capable sometimes of doing all four games in 20 minutes. But I'm probably mm -hmm. also capable of doing all four games sometimes in 37 minutes. And if I had accommodations, I would have more than 37 minutes. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> if you were taking the test, Ben, tomorrow and it counted and someone mm -hmm. said, hey, do you want accommodations? <laughs> Check this box. <laughs> for free. They don't cost anything. Just here you go. Have them. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't, I don't. I can't see myself turning it down. There's no cost to it. I guess there's a, a moral component if you you know if you're going to feel badly about it because you you, feel you don't want special treatment i mean i think she has the right attitude about it but i think that when it comes to the the accommodations themselves she shouldn't think of them as somehow relevant to her thought process about whether or not she should have them right yeah one thing she wrote makes me a little concerned about her understanding of the timing she's mm. saying you know i'm not going to get them because i took it in june and i finished within the time limits oh they're not they're not gonna look at that no 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 uh, because what i think she's she's thinking oh well no time is not even an issue for me but time is an issue for almost everyone and mm -hmm. so she she finished but she missed all the questions that's really really easy to do anybody can do that mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. So uh, what I'm saying is, Crystal, when you slow down and actually understand the questions, you might find that, you know, <laughs> it's going to take you a little bit longer to correctly identify, like to figure out the right answer. It might take you longer than you think 
it's easy to just kind of gloss through it and, and think you're getting it, but not even be getting it at all Mm -hmm. and just finish within the time limits. So I'm, if she's thinking like the extra time won't benefit her, that's a mistake because it will absolutely benefit you for sure. Yeah. All right. Anyway, um, thank you very much, Crystal, for writing in. Good luck. Uh, love to hear how it goes for you. Oh, yeah. We have this note. Hey, guys. David again. I remember on episodes 35 and 71, you discussed LSAT proctors and swapped stories of their general ineptitude. Thankfully, I have never had problems, and my proctors at Chapman University were great, and they were even professionally dressed in suits, and now I know why. Yesterday at the official LSAC forums in Los Angeles, I saw my proctor. He was a rep for the law school, and I said hi to him and thanked him for handling test day well. We chatted a bit, and he explained that since the June administration was on a Monday this year, it was a work day for them, hence their suits. Just wanted to give you guys a positive anecdote concerning proctors. Well, so wait, this this like blows my mind. You're telling me that admissions, uh, people who work in the admissions office for some law school also what end up volunteering or signing up to go proctor LSATs? Mm, yeah. Who knows? I mean, it sounds like they took, they took uh, time off work to go do this. Yeah. They're just at work, right? It's at Chapman. They're a rep for Chapman. Hmm. Maybe they volunteered as a recruiting thing. I mean, I did. I remember when I told you the story about the, the dean of, I can't remember. I'm going to like, I'll just say it. I, I think it might've been McGeorge, you know, the UOP law school. Yeah. People who took it there, uh, the dean came in and gave them like a weird rah-rah speech. Oh before. yeah. 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 I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing here? Remember that? <laughs> Like had them do a like a rage yell or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> it's comedy. Yeah. Anyway, I could see a school like Chapman, you know, having their their admissions folks. But maybe who knows? Anyway, um, sounds like they did a very professional job of it, and so that's nice to know that there are um, proctors out there that don't have their heads completely up their asses because we hear tons of stories of the proctors screwing things so- up. Should we volunteer and start proctoring at uh, local places? I'll be like, hey, you guys already prepared? Are you fully prepared for the test? <laughs> you should just walk out right now. What are you doing? You do not belong here. Go for home. more information on your preparedness, go to strategyprep.com and, you know. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, you guys are struggling with the second game. Oh, yeah. Okay. No problem. <laughs> Yeah, that would be funny to get up and do like a little 10-minute comedy routine before just completely <laughs> bust their balls that, <laughs> about how not prepared they are. No, I will not be volunteering to uh, Proctor. Yeah, no. Yep. <laughs> I don't think I will be either, but interesting. Good story. Okay. Um, we had a question on the website. Uh says... I started practicing for the September LSAT in July for this. Yeah. Um, I took a test master's course, but I was not seeing the score that I wanted 165 plus. 
I was taking prep tests for the sake of practicing, which really burned me out. Ooh, boy. That's a no-no there, huh? Just taking prep tests like, oh, yeah, I got to just drill these prep tests and then like not review them and not learn anything from them. Pretty yeah. classic mistake there. I decided to postpone until the December LSAT and took a two-week break before starting to study again, which I wish people would not do. I hear that all the time, that people take weeks off. And I just think you should be doing a little bit every day. Taking a two week break from LSAT studying is a lot like taking a two week break from the gym. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, I think people need to think about it as more of a slow, steady daily kind of a thing, not Mm -hmm. this intensive, stressful thing that they only do sometimes. I think you just need to, it's civilized. Just start doing a little bit every day. How hard is that? Yeah. Anyway. I've since been using a similar strategy uh, that we talk about on the show of taking one practice section a day along with, along with other practice questions, passages, and games. Uh, okay, yeah. If you're doing a section and thoroughly reviewing it, then you are welcome to do other questions and stuff on that day as well. That's we, fine. Yeah, we, we permit that. That's fine. We would permit that. <laughs> I am doing much better. I scored in the goal range when I took the June 2016 prep test recently. Oh, okay, so I guess 165-ish. I'm nervous, though, about not building enough stamina. The first question in the 2016 prep test was logical reasoning, and I didn't miss a single question, but I missed about seven questions in the second logical reasoning section. Mm, do you think that's caused by stamina, Ben? Not, no. I... Uh... Or it's like an LSAT question. Does this data support the inference that her problem is stamina? I mean, that certainly could be the case, but uh, I suspect she did unusually well in the first one and unusually poorly in the second. Right. If she got two more guesses than normal, right, or 50-50s, right? She had 50-50s and she got, yeah. like, unluck- she got unlucky in the second section, but she had gotten lucky in the first section. That by itself would support a seven-question difference. I would look at the questions that she got wrong, see how difficult they are compared to other questions, and so on. I'd dig into that. Yeah, and when you're reviewing, it's it's about reviewing the seven that you missed. I mean, do you understand why you made those mistakes? And if it's if all seven of them are like, oh, I guess I just didn't read it properly then mm-hmm. I support, I suppose that supports your stamina hypothesis. Mm-hmm. But if you do it again, when you're fresh and you miss it again, then your problem is not stamina. Your problem is you don't understand it. Yeah. She says, I could feel myself getting tired as the test progressed along with getting an aching neck. Oh, wait. So comment there. It does sound like what she's doing, which is not a uncommon thing. And that is she's, Jumping into the section, and she is focusing so much on the questions, which is not a bad thing, but too much almost, that she's physically still the entire time. Probably does not even realize that her head is not moving at all, and her whole neck and shoulders are stiff. So a little bit of like chair yoga is in order, huh? Yeah, just like do a page of questions and then just like stretch your arms for a half second to make sure you're not unconsciously like locked into like a you know 
a whole like a yeah. clenched fist sort well, of yeah like when mindset i see, <laughs> I see clenched fist literally because i see people who have like the death grip on their pencil <laughs> yeah. you know like i'm like i'm like watching the pencil just thinking is it gonna snap is it gonna snap are they gonna do it and you see yeah. people break the tip off on the on the yeah. page and stuff and it's like okay maybe it might be time for us to close our eyes for five or ten seconds take a couple deep breaths and just stretch a little bit, you know, realize that, uh, I say this all the time, but I like saying it. So, you know, the, the whole thing about, Hey, what were your grandparents doing when they were your age? Are you more fortunate than, than they were? Because you probably are. Odds are very high that you're more fortunate mm-hmm. than your grandparents. And, you know, okay, I get it. Your achy neck, but I mean, you're not in the hot sun, like picking cotton, Mm-hmm. And so if, if it's like, if it feels that way, if you're getting the achy neck, then you're doing it wrong. Cause it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. I mean, that would make you tired. So oh, it's yeah. not surprising that she feels tired and maybe that supports her hypothesis about the other questions, but it's an easy solution. Just every two pages, just kind of stretch the shoulders, move things around. That's not building stamina, you know, that's more mm-hmm. like, hey, relax during the 35 minute sections. You just yeah. shouldn't be feeling this way. Yep. Stop gripping the pencil so tightly. That's not helping you get the answers. Yeah. I have eight prep tests left. Yeah, she wants any recommendations on how to build stamina without burning out. I would just say go less is more. Do the one section a day. Take a deep breath. The second you start feeling that achy neck, you know, put the pencil down. Uh, I'm also really nervous about not being able to sleep the night before. I'm not a nervous test taker, but I always get nervous about sleeping through my alarm. It happened once in college, and I have been scarred ever since. Hey, I actually have a sleep Uh, recommendation Ben go for it the new iOS update you're probably a Android guy not an iPhone guy really where'd you get that uh just guessed I don't know you seem savvy I know you're because I know you have PC not a Mac yeah I do have a PC but I've always had an iPhone oh okay nice the newest or one of the new iOS updates when you click on clock have you seen this yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Bedtime. It's yep. it is awesome. Do you love it? I haven't used it because I have uh, Fitbit. Oh, you got your own your own it's got, system. Yeah, its own thing. Yeah, yeah. it's boring. A, no, but it's a very <laughs> I you know because I don't I had never had a Fitbit, but mm-hmm. um, it is a very powerful nudge. Uh, bedtime asks you how much sleep you want to get. And so mm-hmm. I was like, well, I don't know, eight hours. Is that not the number that we're supposed to? I know nobody does that, but like, hey, eight hours. Okay. I put eight hours and then it was like, okay, well, what time do you need to get up? And I put like seven or eight or whatever it is that I usually get up. Yeah, yeah. And now it will tell me, well, then your bedtime is X. Mm-hmm. And it will give you a reminder an hour before it's bedtime. Yeah. And it will then also keep track of it just uses device uh, it does device usage like device motion and usage i guess mm. but it keeps track of when i'm not fucking around with the phone which yeah. is basically you know i am fucking around with the phone like 100% of the time that i'm awake or at least it's mm-hmm. in my pocket it's moving around you know so i don't know how exactly it does it but it's been keeping track of my sleep mm-hmm. and it has been an amazing 
little nudge in the direction of getting more sleep. Since I started using the bedtime app, I am getting way more sleep than I can ever remember getting in my entire life. That's awesome. Dude, it's it's great. I feel great. Uh, I am like looking forward to, you know, bedtime basically. It's like, oh yeah, this is the time for me to go to bed now and power down and make sure that I wake up tomorrow not feeling like shit. Because mm-hmm. I'm capable of getting three hours of sleep if I don't if I don't pay attention, you know, I'll have something going on tomorrow morning and I just won't be thinking about it. And then I'll just stay up way too late goofing off. And then next thing you know, it's like, Oh good. I'm going to get four hours of sleep tonight. Yeah. So anyway, check that out and maybe that would um, help our writer here. And can we say their name? Oh yeah. Because they posted it on the website. So Namrata, Mm -hmm. uh, Namrata, thank you very much for writing into the show. Yeah. It's an email from Scott. Hey guys, love the podcast. Now wait, this is from a prep test. Are we are we going to do this? We're going to read the uh, read. The, I guess it's a summary of the questions. I just don't want to yeah. get in trouble with our overlords. <laughs> yeah, let's see here. Let's jump into Scott's issue not necessarily with this particular question yeah go ahead yeah so what does scott say scott says basically scott was doing this flaw question and um identified a mistake and then or a flaw in the argument and then went into the answer choices and chose the wrong answer and it wasn't um the flaw that they were quote looking for Right. And so he's wondering, uh, how can I stop following, you know, falling for these traps and identifying the flaw that they're not really looking for and instead find the actual flaw that they uh, are testing us on for whatever question. And one thing that he said, where did he say this? I thought he said that he went too quickly. Oh, yeah. He said, I reach the question stem and see it's a flaw in the reasoning question. I quickly think of my guess. (laughs) Yeah, there's your problem. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) To the flaw and say, oh, that's easy. The flaw is that just because blah, 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 blah. And he's off to the answer choices and choosing the wrong one. So, uh, yeah, I think I do remember this now. I wrote him back and I said, well, you, you sound like you're doing it too quickly and you're guessing that's yeah the- i mean that might just be uh, yeah <laughs> if you're ever thinking of it as a guess it is it's not supposed to be a guess flaw questions um are evidence-based and when they tell you that there's a flaw in the reasoning that means there's a flaw explicit in the reasoning and you shouldn't be quickly thinking of a guess like oh maybe it's this you should be putting your finger on the spot in the argument where they actually made a logical flaw. Yeah. And I would, I would say that there's, uh, I don't want to like overcomplicate this process, but I I would say there's actually two stages of analysis. And that is, um, he is reading the the passage first, which is something that we both do and uh, think is good. And then um, he's reading the question stem or prompt, whatever you want to call it, and saying, oh, it's a flaw question. And then he says, I quickly think of my guess as to the flaw. I would say 
there's the he's missing the first stage, which is in most cases when you're reading the passage or the argument, and it turns out to be a flaw question, but you don't even know that it's a flaw question yet. Mm. In most of those cases, you should be at least you know somewhat sensitive to the fact that there's a problem with the argument. You you and the reason I say it's a, a two stage analysis is that sometimes I read the argument. And I see the conclusion, I see the evidence, and I'm kind of like, um, yeah, that's that seems reasonable enough. And then it's like, the argument is most vulnerable to criticism on the grounds. I'm like, oh, it's a flaw question. Oops, apparently I missed it. So then I'm going to force myself to go back and find that flaw for sure. But that's the exception. In most cases, I've read the argument and I'm thinking, this is bad for this reason. Yeah, we're not we're not surprised when we see a flaw question stem. Most of yeah. the time, we already saw we already saw that flaw. Yeah. So, in essence, Scott and anyone else who's approaching the questions as he is is missing two opportunities to find the flaw. The first one, when you read through it, usually you'll find it then. And if you didn't, uh, the second opportunity is to go back and really think about it, which he he sounds he did quickly, but not really. I mean. To that real process is, what's the evidence? Let me make sure I understand that. What does that evidence prove, and how is that different from what the conclusion is saying? Awesome. He also says, you know, he fell in love with B. It matches his guess. And he says, that's it, I would say. Done. B it is. What do you think's wrong yeah. with that? That Well, yeah, that's... Uh, in most cases, if you like an answer choice, then you should be keeping that open and then going to the others to see if there's anything that might be better or maybe reveal something that you're missing about B. Uh, so I'm surprised that he was just done there. Yeah, you can like the answer choice. That's fine. You can have a hypothesis that that's going to turn out to be the right answer, but you certainly still have to read C and D and E because there's two errors that you can make, or there's two errors that you have to make in order to miss one of these logical reasoning questions, right? You have to not only choose a wrong answer, but you have to not choose the credited answer. And if you don't read all five, you're not even giving yourself a chance to maybe save yourself. You know, you could read C or D or E here and it could be like, Oh wait, that also sounds like what I was looking for. Huh? That also matches my kind of matches what I was thinking. Yeah. And then you'd have to compare that closely to B and just make sure, you know, which one is the best description of the flaw that was in the argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He then says, can you guys help me with a trick to start thinking like A and not like B, which was the, the right answer and the wrong answer. The trick is to just slow down and actually think about what you're reading. And I would say focus a lot on stage one. Read the first sentence, understand it. Read the second sentence, understand it. Read the third sentence, understand it. And at that point, if you really do try to understand things and think about what they're saying, a lot of times the flaw will just jump right out at you. You say, well, if that's really what you're saying, you're stupid, here's why. Well, Ben, I think that's about it for this week. Um, you got anything else you want to say to the listeners? No. Um, No. <laughs> I was going to say something about Trump, but I, I don't know what to say about Trump. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know what to say about Trump either. I just, you know, 
I, I'm not, I just can't get that worried about it. I've, we've cried wolf so many times, you know, every single time it's, this is the worst president of all time. Yeah. You know what? I, I do have to say that, um, this was destined to be the most hated president of all time. No matter who won, they were going to be the most hated president of sure. all time. Yeah. And, um, I'm glad that at least now it's going to be deserved. <laughs> That's my joke. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Uh, I have to commend him, though. I am impressed. I mean, he, I, he's defied everybody, right? Oh, yeah. Defied everybody's expectations. All the, quote, experts, including myself, who mocked him last night in class. Oh, yeah. I mocked him on the show. I mean, I've said a million times that he's never going to win. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Hmm. All the time. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, he he did it. He pulled off a crazy, <laughs> crazy sneak attack on democracy. Yep. So that's awesome. I guess we're going to find out what's what's going to happen. You think the podcast will still be here in four years, Ben, when we're doing this whole thing again? Four years. That sounds like a long time. Doesn't that sound like a long time to you? Except that we know that it's not at all, right? I mean, we elected obama eight years ago yeah and re-elected true. him four years ago and it's like nothing time just flies yeah so, well i mean the election cycle is going to be cranking what two years from now mm-hmm. we'll be talking about primaries and bullshit already so yeah it'll it'll be right around the corner it'll be interesting to see who ends up getting nominated now uh in 2020 uh, the democrats have a chance now to you know nominate somebody that maybe more people will be more excited about yeah it's like I voted for Clinton, but I wasn't like thrilled about it, you know, mm-hmm. and I would have loved to have first the first woman president. That's a, a nice achievement for our society. You know, that's inevitable. It's going to happen very soon. But uh, yeah, maybe we can get somebody that we can uh, actually get jazzed up about. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, you can send all the hate mail about the election to Ben at strategyprep.com. <laughs> if you have questions you. for the show, you can send it to both of us at uh, help at thinkinglsat.com. You can tweet me at infox. You can tweet uh, the show at thinkinglsat. Okay, so now we will cut to our interview with Anne Levine about uh, law school admissions questions. Okay, wonderful. All right. Uh, So with us in Santa Barbara is Anne Levine. Anne, how have you been? I'm I'm all right. I'm alive. The sun came up. Life continues. How are you guys? What happened? We had an election. Wait, we did. Yeah, <laughs> your readers might be—I mean, your listeners might be so busy studying for the LSAT they could have missed it, which might be the whole problem. No, just kidding. So, uh, yeah, what's going on with that? What happened? You, you know, um, I won't really say what happened, but I, I might offer a little pep talk about it, if I might. Yeah, sounds great. So, in an era when people, present company excluded, are a little down on lawyers, I would say that lawyers are really for people that are really upset about what's going on with our federal government, lawyers are sort of our one hope right now. The people who are, on the one hand, going to um, bring lawsuits when things are unconstitutional, <laughs> the people who are going to represent uh, immigrants and you know, improve uh, policing and improve community relations and local government, this is all gonna come from lawyers. It's gonna come from law students and lawyers. And 
um, that's really where we have the biggest power right now to check government. If the whole federal government is all going to be from one persuasion and people who believe in are more civil rights inclined, are more inclined to fight for equality in marriage, racial equality, justice equality, et cetera. I mean, this effort really is going to come from people who are going to law school and, and people and recent law school graduates. So now I just put that out there that, that what people are trying to do does matter. It does seem like a good time to channel your rage and do something about it. You know, if for, for the people out there who really care, who are really invested, um, rather than bitching and complaining on Twitter all day. I mean, I guess a little bit of that you can do for a while, but, uh, <laughs> it's therapeutic to some regard, <laughs> in some regard. I, I think that especially for people for whom this might be their first presidential election, it's a doozy. And rather than feeling disenfranchised to, to use the tools you have, your education, your networks, and, and try to find a way to, to engage with it. I mean, I think, I think that's really for, not everyone's going to law school because those are the things they care about, but most people going to law school care about one side of it or another, whether it's corporate tax rates, you know, if they're going to be working on that end, or whether it's some of the issues I already mentioned. I think, you know, the law is a place where we can really address that. And it's not all about who we elect, but, you know, what we do within the framework we have. So that's like probably the most serious topic you've ever addressed on your show. Oh yeah, we never <laughs> we never address any like, serious topics. Like this is like as so, deep yeah. as you as we get. So I'm sort of like wanting to do one of those Ugh, and like okay, change the topic. Like let's let's not go there. But I think it has to go there a little bit. I think you know we have to regroup a bit. I, I certainly wasn't expecting this to be the tone when we scheduled to do this the morning after election day. But um, I'm usually a little <laughs> more bubbly. But you know, people who are playing to law school don't stop now. Keep going. Cool. So your uh, expertise is law school admissions and people who are um, passionate about these issues are thinking about applying to law school this cycle or next cycle. We love having you on because you can give us sort of the latest in law school admissions. Anything exciting that you would like to talk about? Any big news in admissions? Well, I, I think what I'm seeing right now at the beginning of this admission cycle and starting to see some results for um, my admission consulting clients is I've noticed a few things. Um, most of them have been at the top end of the law school spectrum simply because those are some of the schools that people have heard back from already. For example, UVA has been amazing this cycle at um, scheduling phone calls with applicants and admitting them within you know an hour to three days after that in some occasions and not being um, as stringent on LSAT right now and, and really grabbing some fabulous people quickly. And I think that's an awesome trend I'd like to see more of um, at the at the at comparable schools. I, I also in the past have seen Georgetown sort of take some lower numbers under the binding early decision, maybe high GPA, lower LSAT people, but I haven't seen that as, as much this time. I've seen most of those people get deferred. Have you seen that also, Ben? Uh, you know, I, I'm not tracking that as closely, so I, I don't yeah. really know, but I, I was curious, you said that UVA, um, seems to be more flexible with the LSAT. So do you think they're looking more, they're giving more weight to GPA or other factors such I, I as experience think, or? 
Yeah, I think in, in this case, in the particular case I'm thinking of, uh, and actually I can think of another two in which someone was waitlisted, um, they're looking at experience in addition to just GPA. Both of those candidates were not right out of school, but did have excellent GPAs from when they were in school. Both brought really um, exciting and different uh, professional experiences related to law to law school. So um, I'm, I'm really happy with how they're, uh, how they're doing things right now. Other schools, you know, interviews has been really the biggest change over the last couple of years uh, in terms of what I've seen from the law school admission end as numbers went down, as technology improved, more schools are incorporating interviews into their process in different ways and stages. For example, Wash U is doing phone interviews um, and, and in-person interviews sort of liberally. I think also they're doing it before people even apply as a recruiting measure. And then you have schools like uh, Vanderbilt Northwestern, where you proactively sign up for an interview. Uh, you don't have to be asked to do one. And then you have schools like Georgetown that does a combination of interviews, uh, some in person, some with alumni, some are the dreaded group interview. Uh, you have schools like UCLA that are, that in the, at least in the last year and, and now are starting to sort of handpick people to do Skype or phone interviews with. So I think that interviews, and, and although I've been focusing largely on the top 20 schools in those examples, that's where most of the interview requests um, have been coming from. And I think that that's a really important uh, part of this process where applicants really need to be able to articulate why a school interests them, what they're looking for. That's that's something that's going to task applicants to, to really be able to, to say credibly. And I think I think these are these are tools that really help um, the most promising applicants, even when the numbers might not uh, be there. But it's still not a situation where people would want to be asking for these interviews, right? You're saying yeah, that all of these really are... do that. Yeah, except, I mean, the only... Asking for an interview isn't going to get you at anything. You, you know, these the law schools are interviewing the people they want to interview with the exception of Vanderbilt or Northwestern that you can sign up for the interview proactively. Hmm. Um, okay. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that is a good point. I mean, I think if there's going to be a lot of people who might be excited to be interviewed, but maybe not have much to say, right? Yeah. When they're actually asked questions. <laughs> I think being able to practice articulating um, how your past experiences influence your career goals is a good thing to practice. Um, I would also say interview, most people feel they interview well. And I would say 75% of those people are correct, that they do interview well. Um, but I also think with a large number of international students applying to law school, which I've really seen increase steadily year over year, not in a scientific way, don't ask me for numbers, but in a in a in an anecdotal way, I mean, I personally see a lot more applicants who either uh, are international and came here for college or are coming from international institutions and applying to law school here. I'm seeing um, I, I think interviews are very stressful for them, depending on their English language fluency. And so that that can add another layer of anxiety for some applicants as well. But I think it's a really promising uh, development. And, uh, you know, there's always uh, the Harvard interview where no one's getting into Harvard unless they've gotten through the interview. So, uh, you know, I think that that I think it's a great thing that law schools are, especially those law schools that are incorporating alumni into the interview process. It's a great opportunity for law school applicants to network, to really ask someone about their career and how they got there. And, and really another person to explore the legal field with. So, I mean, these, these are great. I think these are generally really good developments for applicants. Yeah. Uh, if you were still 
on the other side of the fence, uh, looking at applications to accept people to your school, what kind of questions would you ask? Well, I, I don't think we have to be theoretical about it. I mean, I think we know what the schools are asking. Um, you know, and some schools have friendlier um, interview cultures than others. Um, I think, and, and this, oh God, I should mention this dreaded video recording interview thing that Northwestern does sometimes and Cornell did last year and St. I think it was Seton Hall or did it last year or St. John's. I can't remember, but Oh, Oh, it's awful. Not to make anyone more nervous by calling it awful, but basically, you know, you had get a couple tries to answer some interview questions. And at some of the schools, they've been some tough ones that have been more like what you would expect from MBA interviews. In terms of so, what I would ask, I would or say... What are some of the questions, I guess, you're saying that Some we, of the questions. Um, so some questions to absolutely expect, or maybe if, if the person has your resume, you should expect to sort of explain different experiences you've had, what you learned from them, why you sought them out. Be prepared with strengths and weaknesses, and, and not cheesy ones like, I'm a perfectionist. Better to be authentic and introspective. Be prepared with why you want to go to law school, what kinds of careers you see for yourself in your future, and how that law school is a good fit for you culturally and because of your goals and and where you want to practice or or work. And be prepared to um, have a question, a thoughtful question or two uh, for the interviewer. You know, not just uh, tell me about this clinic, but, you know, something that's thoughtful and not our students nice to each other or competitive. Like, what do you think they're going to say? So I would just say come up with some time with some thoughtful questions. Um, Think about ways you've been involved in undergrad or, or professionally and ways that you can continue that or expand on it or link it to something that's offered at the law school and and ask questions about perhaps what people with your interests would get involved in, what opportunities would they suggest that you pursue at their law school? Mm. So um, just be thoughtful, be, you know, the number one piece of advice I would give is just you, it's better to be humble than to be arrogant. Yeah. Great. So, Anne, what's your greatest weakness as a law school applicant? My greatest weakness 22 years ago as a law school applicant was that I didn't study for the LSAT. (laughs) I flat out didn't study for the LSAT. I, have I ever told you the story, Nathan? This is I don't pretty know. funny. So in May of my senior year, a friend basically says, well, you know, Ann, you should really go to law school and what you care about, you should really go to law school. He was in law school at University of Miami and that's where I was undergrad. And I'm like, okay, so what do I have to do? Oh, you have to sign up for the LSAT. Well, the late registration deadline has passed. This is pre-internet, pre-cell phones, back when we had something called long distance calling where you paid for each minute on the phone. So I call, and it happens to be the very last day you can possibly sign up for the LSAT in June. So I call, I'm on hold for something like 68 minutes. I'm livid because that costs me like, I don't know, $14 or something, maybe more, I can't remember. And they finally get on the phone and I convince them to pay my long distance bill. So that was sort of my first um, <laughs> legal argument there. Wow. But in any event, I signed up for the LSAT basically four weeks before the LSAT. I opened a book. I didn't know that prep courses existed, even if what they were was very limited at the time with things like Kaplan and what have you. So um, I just started reading the books and then I went and took the test. How awesome was that? Yeah, well, we still see that every day. I mean, we get we get people in, in class that are like, yeah, I just took it cold the first time and then I read a book and took it again. And now can you help me? So I didn't even think to take it again. I just took it and I was done. To be honest, in hindsight, I didn't do that bad considering I had no clue what I was doing. I did not do that badly. So I think to myself, God, just think what I would have done if I had like 
had Nathan or Ben. Well, that's almost even more tragic when we hear that. It's like, it's devastating. But here's the thing. For that part in my life, for that time in my life, I was restricted to going to law school in the state of Florida. So I either was going to go to UF, FSU, or UM, and my score was going to be fine to get me into those schools. So I, it wasn't like a concern for me. So I would say as a law school applicant, that was my biggest weakness. And uh, I don't know, maybe that in itself, even though that had, that something that happened in 1995 <laughs> might still be useful to someone. <laughs> so now I'm going to ask my favorite interview question, which oh, is, shoot. what's your second biggest weakness? Currently or as a law school applicant? As a law school applicant, what's your second biggest weakness? My second biggest weakness as a law school applicant, I would say in hindsight, my choice of undergraduate major. No, I take it back. I take it back. I might even put this as my first the biggest mistake I made as a law school applicant, other than not preparing for the LSAT, was my first semester at the University of Miami was 1992. I got to vote for Bill Clinton, but it also meant that I, my first day of college was Hurricane Andrew. And school was interrupted for three weeks. It was fairly traumatic uh, in terms of interrupting the semester and all of that. And it actually meant that we had no final exams. And as this, the, because there was no time for reading periods. So professors were told they were not allowed to give final exams. And we, they were just supposed to base it on three tests during the year or whatever other requirements. But they were not allowed to give a cumulative test at the end because there was no time for a reading period. Most of my professors defied that in my first semester of college. So we had all of the coursework and all of the exams, but we did not have time built into the schedule to prepare for those exams. You had your last day of class and that was your test. Uh, that covered the whole semester. And my first semester grades in college were, um, I don't remember what they were, but they were pretty bad. I mean, if they were a 3-0, maybe 2-9, something like that, they were bad. And I never, it never occurred to me to explain in, in my application. And now maybe the schools in Florida, we can argue, could have figured that out, what happened there, um, especially since I ended up going to my alma mater for law school. And the rest of my grades became stronger and stronger every single semester. But I think that was a, a big mistake as a law school applicant that I didn't take time and say, um, by the way, like I also could say if, I, if you're going to ask me what my third mistake is, I would say my third mistake was I actually think I could have written a pretty darn good diversity statement. I don't know if they existed back then. Um, I don't recall that being part of the process, to be honest with you, um, but probably I just assumed it didn't apply to me. But I was the one Jewish girl at my high school in Alabama, and I could have written a diversity statement. Just saying. Cool. Don't ask me my fourth weakness. I don't have any others. Everything else is amazing about me. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I have a couple items here, just kind of random questions that I've been getting okay. from students. One was a question that I hadn't heard before. Someone was asked on an application to explain if they've ever resigned from a job, I think, because of unfavorable circumstances. Okay. Have you heard of that question or what do you think? I've seen that once or twice. I don't know if I've seen it phrased exactly that way, but if you've ever been terminated from a job, please, it, it, and if it includes resignation, fine. If, you, if you've ever been terminated from a job, please explain the circumstances. Um, I have seen that um, on a couple applications. This question was specifically resigned, which made me then, th and it's, it seems so vague, resigned because of unfavorable circumstances. Yeah. My gut was like, leave it blank no matter what. But I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think it depends on the circumstances. Um, I think, you know, uh, there are some applications where I've advised people to say something like laid off as part of, you know, um, 
what do you call it, a, uh, a furlough or a laid off as part of a, uh, well, gosh, it's escaping me this morning. I drank too much last night, apparently. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? Help me out, guys. Um, as part of a, a, a downsizing. Thank you. Da- thanks for your help, guys. Really, <laughs> yeah, you're really welcome. thank you. No as problem. part of a downsizing effort or, you know, um, wasn't good personality fit or whatever. But I, I mean, yeah, that's sort of an odd question. I'm, I'm inclined to sort of, you know, avoid it. <laughs> I was just wondering what the schools were fishing for on there. And it it seemed to me like maybe they were just trying to fish for someone who was going to, you know, pop off about how they hated their ex employer for a million reasons. Law schools want to read that stuff. Do you know what I mean? So like I generally, and maybe this is the Hillary Clinton supporting optimist in me, but I generally think that people aren't trying to get people (laughs) aren't trying to, that, that law schools aren't trying to get you. And, and they're just sort of wanting to know maybe adversity you faced or maybe if there's a habit of you leaving jobs. I don't know. I wouldn't stress over that one. I'd total my thumbs at it and move on. Okay, cool. What's going on with um, early decision, early action programs? It's that time of year, right? It's totally that time of year. The first message I would give out about um, binding early decision and and early action stuff is that if there's not that one magic school that you would attend, no matter what happened in the universe, then binding is not for you. It shouldn't be used as simply a game. Well, if I can't get in this school, I can get in that school, blah, 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 blah. I mean, there is a way to game it, right? Let's say you apply by November 15th to USC. You decide if you're not going to get in binding in USC, you're going to do the second round at Cornell or Penn or UVA. Then if you don't get in those, you'll do binding at Georgetown, right? There's a way to game this. But on the other hand, really hope that with such different schools, you have a preference between them. And, you know, if you end up getting a full scholarship to Loyola, that you're not going to kick yourself or binding yourself to some school across the country. It's like proposing marriage. Well, it's more permanent. Right? I mean, you're declaring your one true love when you apply binding. It's more permanent. You can take the ring back, Nathan. <laughs> true. <laughs> true. Okay. You can get a divorce. No. You could put your diploma in the recycling. Yeah, that's really productive. $200,000 later. Um, I would, you know, here's the thing. I, I'm not necessarily a huge believer in that. I, I believe that very few law school applicants should apply binding. Yes, that's my that's my statement. But if you are going to apply binding, you can play it a little bit with schools, especially because one of the trends I am seeing is there are more schools that are having these second round or later binding deadlines. So you can you don't get in your first choice one, you have time to, to put in or upgrade your application at another. But if scholarships are going to be a part of your consideration process, if you haven't yet gotten to visit the school or the city, you're binding yourself to you know, really think about what you're doing. (laughs) Um, Because especially with some of my younger clients, I believe that nine months ahead of time, we don't always know in our 20s where we want to be nine months later, um, a year down the road. You could suddenly, you could be very happy with the relationship in Boston and that person's going to New York. So you want to go to New York, but then that doesn't work out. So now you're stuck being in New York with that awful person. Like, so I just sort of think keeping things loosey-goosey uh, is that still a word? It's the drinking again. I got to stop. You know, keeping things open in your life is usually better than, oh my God, I got into that one amazing school that I do not want to go to, but I got in, so I have to go. So I would just say use it sparingly. Okay. But can it give you a bump? Yeah, it can give you a bump. That's what everyone really wants to know. But 
Do I have a better chance at such and such school? Yes, if they take people with your numbers generally, um, you have a better chance of getting in if you apply binding. Unless it's a school that's offering a significant scholarship with the binding. But at some schools you can choose, are you going to do the binding program that comes with the scholarship, which is going to be more competitive than regular admission, or you can choose if you're going to do the binding that doesn't come with a scholarship. So that's a new and interesting trend in the world of early decision at law schools. Cool, yeah. So wait, for the one with um, early decision and scholarship, yeah, you're more looking at like a safe school then, or... No, what what those schools are trying to do is, so for example, it's like GW trying to grab the people who would normally go to Georgetown. It's like Northwestern trying to grab the people yeah, that so, otherwise go to University of Chicago. Yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's a safe school for you. like. Yes, I would say that. It should be, yeah, I mean, that, that's one way of putting it. I wouldn't say that everyone who's within the numbers for a school will get that program, but they will choose the top people who do that yeah. because they're sure things. Yeah. Huh. Cool. Anything else in early decision, early action? Not yet. Um, you know, I, schools haven't really gotten back on those applications yet. So, you know, check in with me, you know, maybe after Thanksgiving, uh, early mid-December, and let's see what the schools have done with early decision differently this year than previous years. And that will be, I think, very helpful in people who are thinking about a second round of early decision or people who are applying next year. And um, I think I'm coming to see you next weekend, Nathan, too. So maybe by then I'll have a little more information also. Yeah, I'll see you in San Francisco. That'll be great. Yeah. Let's see. I have an, one more question here, I think, Please. which is we had Ben and I talked to, or we, we gave some advice to a listener who wrote in and asked about six-year joint bachelor yeah. JD programs. Ben and I were both pretty negative on the idea just in that it was like, why are you rushing into law school? But we would <laughs> love, to, love to hear what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's a very personal thing, right? I think that for those programs that people apply as college freshmen for those programs, that's a little scary, like that a 17-year-old is deciding what they want to do. There are some 17-year-olds, like I have um, some friends from college who their kid, I have no doubt, I've known since he was 15, maybe younger, that he was going to be a lawyer. He like killed it in mock trial that he was always going to do that. There's a, I remember tweeting years ago a picture of him reading my book when he was like, I don't know, 14. Like he was... Um, you know, that kid, I think, would be a good kid to do a, a six-year program. But I think for most people, that's um, it can be pretty limiting. I would also want to make sure that the time commitment for that program doesn't restrict people from having the freedom to really explore life while they're in college. You know, to do a study abroad, to take internships in different things, explore different things, get involved in different things. Like I had friends in um, college who did six-year MD programs, uh, bachelor's and, and, um, and MD. And um, they were still involved in campus and they were still doing a lot of things, but they were stressed. As are all pre-MD students anyway. I mean, it's all re- If you're a pre-MD, it's like, it's pretty nuts even when you're a freshman. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think, you know, it, I think the programs are great opportunities for some. I think just, you know, again, how I feel about binding yourself when you're a young person, like just do it cautiously. Cool. But it saves a lot of money if you know that's what you want to do. Is it, is it actually cheaper? So it's actually one year sure. less? Well, it's one year less of undergrad, one year less of law school, right? Pretty much. Wait, it's only one year less, right? Yeah. One year less, okay. So, I mean, you know, it's not nothing depending on the school you're talking about. It could easily be 50 grand right there. Yeah. And you said, so there, there's no chance of making law school two years. This is not going to happen. 
well, I mean, what do I know? I thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's unlikely. I mean, I, Barack Obama would like it to be two years, but I don't think he gets much say in that. I think that schools are adding in more experiential learning opportunities. So the nature of legal education is morphing into more experiential, into more travel-related opportunities, um, global exploration, things like that. So um, I think there are some changes, but I don't think you're really going to... I think law school is like the last thing that's ever going to change ever. Mm. That seems likely based on how <laughs> how the LSAT has, tends to move and how oh, law LSAT schools tend worst. to move. Yeah. The LSAT's the worst. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't see that being an overwhelming movement. I think the schools that have tried it, it hasn't been very successful. I mean, is Brooklyn still doing their program? Northwestern's not doing theirs, are they? I mean, I think most of these places that, I mean, Southwestern has a two-year scale program, but I think most of these schools that have tried the two-year thing, it just doesn't gain traction. Is it that the students are interested in it, or is it that people are potentially not interested in hiring, so then the students are not interested in it, or do I, we? I don't know. It's a chicken or an egg thing, you know. I, I'm not really sure. Huh. It'd be cheaper, so students, I would think. But you don't be... get work experience while you're doing it. You know, you're pushing through really fast. It's. Yeah. I don't know. It, it just, for whatever reason, hasn't caught on. Um, I haven't had that many clients who've been interested in pursuing it either. Hmm. Well, I think that's everything I have on my list. Ben, do you have anything else for Anne? No, except maybe just this difference between taking the test in February and taking it in December. <laughs> that's like I'm banging my head against the counter. <laughs> I get this question all the time, and my, my reaction is, hey, take the test when you're ready, and then just apply next year if you're going to ah, have to take it in February. That's a great answer. So oh, this okay. is this year because... There was not much room to sign up, not much um, time to sign up for the December LSAT when September scores came out. So it caused a bit of a freak out. Um, and th this is going to happen again with December, by the way. If you're going to take a February LSAT, you got to be signed up before December. I mean, I think they have a notice about that on the site, right? So here's the thing. I'm not a fan of applying to law school in March. I'm not a fan of applying to law school before March, but not allowing your application to be complete until March. Like... I'm just not a fan of that. I don't think that's how law school applicants get the best results. I think that serves yeah. no one but the law schools themselves. So if you're not ready for December, wait, do something fun or interesting for six months and apply to law school in the fall. Don't rush December. Like some people really rush December, especially it's your third and last time. I think that desperation is not a conducive mental atmosphere <laughs> for taking the test successfully. I almost would rather people try applying now with what they've got and then decide. And, and, and maybe they do very well in February and they can update their applications with a new score. Or if they're waitlisted someone, they can use their February score for some traction there or, or increase scholarship dollars. But just the waiting and applying with that score is where I really sort of draw the line. Yeah. How many people do you think can expect to get fee waivers for their applications? I mean, like if someone is sitting down and saying, hey, I want to apply to these six schools, is it reasonable to expect that half of them will waive their fee or is it pretty normal to expect to just pay? It depends on the person. So if you're a competitive applicant, you should email the schools and, and ask them, say, here are my numbers. It would be really helpful to have a fee waiver. You can go to a law school forum. Isn't Boston this weekend or something? I don't know. Like go to a law school forum and 
you'll get fee waivers. Um, make mm. sure to register for credential referral service uh, through LSAC. You get fee waivers. So it just depends um, how proactive you are. I I can't give an exact number for people for people that aren't competitive and the law schools aren't really seeking them out. They have very low numbers. Then they're unlikely yeah. to be invited with fee waivers to very desirable schools. But um, fee waivers are a thing, and you can ask for them. Yeah, yeah. It costs you nothing to ask, so right. why not? Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Anne. Come back anytime. I will look forward to seeing you next weekend in San Francisco. That'll be fun. I appreciate it. I look forward to it as well. And it's always fun to talk with you guys and uh, let me know how I can be of help. Okay. Thank you. Take care, Anne.